very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. I'm Sean Richards, hosting today and joined by Pastor Scott Richards, as per usual. That's me. And we will be also included in that usual routine, answering your Bible questions for the next hour. If you have sincere Bible questions, we welcome them on the broadcast. Note that if your question is sincere, that means that you want to hear the answer. It is about the Bible and the substance of the question and the answer. That is what we'll be responding with. And that, of course, it's asked in the form of a question in the old style of Jeopardy, the United States TV show. Note that wherever you're listening to us, if you want to send us your questions, you can do so through a variety of channels. First of all, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions is plural. The F-O-R is, of course, spelled properly. Hope at gmail.com. If you send your question to us there, either during or perhaps after the broadcast, it will give us ease of access to either revisit the question if we didn't have time for it, or to use it at a later date should the phone lines, hypothetically speaking, of course, be silent. If you'd like to send us questions through social media, you can follow us on YouTube at A Reason for Hope. The A Reason for Hope is, of course, the number four, and if you want to join us there, you'll also have access to our bi-weekly Bible study, which includes on our Wednesday night studies at this moment, the Book of Esther, and our Sunday morning studies through the Book of Acts. You will be notified when we are going live as well, both for the broadcast and our local fellowship. So if either would interest you, feel free to subscribe to us there and hit the notification bell. If you'd like to join us on Facebook, the same principles and benefits apply. We'll have a live studio chat for the broadcast, not only during the broadcast, but an inbox where you can send us your questions, perhaps if you'd like them addressed anonymously, although the email address is good for that as well. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash ccf Tucson. If you'd like proper spelling, feel free to include that along with your Bible question. We'll be happy to help you out. Otherwise, if you're joining us live, it is on the screen. If you'd like to join us on our website, perhaps avoiding social media, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. You click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to where you can engage with us from 5 to 6 p.m. today. But starting Monday, that will be the next time that we're live with you. We will be going from 4 to 5 p.m. Arizona time. We don't like to conform to the Mountain Standard Time international law. So we're stubborn. Yeah, we go we're by tough our own as rules. old boots. <laughs> but with that in mind, you can send your question to us there, of course, not only online through our website, but also engage with us there. We'll have a chat function on the side of the screen. You can type in your own name or anonymous if you would prefer, but we'll be keeping an eye on those as the broadcast unfolds. And if you'd like those repeated, note that they will be coming across the screen as the broadcast unfolds as well. You can um, use our email address anytime you wish, as long as it is to send us Bible questions. If you're lonely, we'll be happy to pray for you, but just make sure that it's not for everyday conversation. We set that aside for a purpose. That's not it. Also note our social media questions. Platforms. That's what we want on that, that side of things. Yeah. Our social media platforms are open and available for you as well. And we'd look forward to your engagement as well as to share it with people that you think would be blessed by the broadcast as well. But we know it's not going to be a blessing unless the Lord's a part of it. So why don't we ask him to do that? Yeah. Lord, thank you for being with us here. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to explore your word together. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do as you promised he would do and guide us into all truth. We pray that we would come away 
with a, a better understanding of the facts of your word, maybe on uh, some areas that we've been fuzzy on. We pray, Father, that we would uh, learn how to apply your truth, even the most challenging uh, modern issues of life. Lord, thank you for your timelessness. Thank you, Lord, that you're way ahead of us in your divine revelation, and all we have to do is take your truths and apply them specifically to what we're facing, and uh, we're going to be blessed. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would extend comfort through your word, Lord, letting people know that you are the true and living God, that you're faithful to your promises and that you love us and that you know the plans you have for us, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give us a future and a hope. Thank you, Father, that we get a chance to explore these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, so as we make the habit of doing, keeping you all updated on prophetically significant events, What's going on? Well, uh, again, just a, a quick update on what's happening in Israel. More of the same. Uh, Israel continues to uh, pursue and tighten the noose, if you will, on uh, the Hamas terrorists. There is a, uh, well, a fly in the ointment, if you will, that has come up. There is an area in Gaza called Rafah, which is near the Egyptian border. And essentially what has happened is Israel has come in from the northern part of Gaza and swept downward, forcing the Hamas terrorists first out of northern Gaza into the centralized areas uh, and now uh, has pretty much pushed the head honchos and powers that be uh, that are there in Gaza up into this area called Rafah, which is up against the Egyptian border. Well, as is their habit, the Hamas terrorists like to take along by force, if necessary, uh, the average civilians in Gaza to use as human shields. Uh, many uh, Gazans willingly do so because they believe, according to Islam, that the only way that you can guarantee your place in uh, Islamic heaven is to die in jihad. And if you die as collateral damage, that counts, according to uh, the teachings of, uh, of Islam. And so many of them go along willingly, but uh, because of this, because there's such a high concentration of civilians there in this area, uh, the United States has been, uh, well, pulling back the reins, if you will, on Israel a bit, uh, wanting them to uh, do their best to uh, remove uh, the, uh, the civilians and the possibility for unintended casualties to happen as uh, the, uh, the main showdown uh, begins to take place in this battle. Now, by main showdown, I don't want to overstate the fact. Uh, again, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has indicated that even if, uh, say, an engagement happens in Rafah and uh, it uh, delivers, in a sense, a uh, crucial, uh, almost killer blow to Hamas in that area, that doesn't mean that an awful lot of Hamas terrorists haven't, uh, well, melted in the background, uh, made themselves hidden in the woodwork so to speak. And it is going to be quite a while uh, of mopping up uh, going on, certainly not uh, to the extent uh, that has uh, taken place uh, going on in, uh, in the recent weeks. But uh, the, the work isn't done. Uh, the IDF, for instance, has yet to capture or eliminate uh, Yaha Sinwar, who is the head honcho on the ground in uh, Gaza. The other uh, leaders of Hamas uh, comfortably ensconced in five-star luxury hotels in Gutter. Although earlier today uh, there was a story that broke uh, indicating that the United States and Gutter are uh, exerting pressure on these individuals to find somewhere else as their hidey hole, so to speak. But uh, again, Yaha Sinwar is the uh, big target down there. Obviously, Israel wants to do everything that it possibly can 
uh, to rescue as many hostages as possible, including a number of hostages who are United States citizens. We just don't hear a whole lot of that discussed uh, in the updates from our State Department and our administration. But uh, again, the priority is to rescue as many of them as is humanly possible. Uh, You may have heard uh, various overtures, uh, the idea that uh, Egypt and uh, other nations, Jordan, uh, Gutter, have uh, orchestrated uh, a uh, peace initiative, uh, a, uh, an attempt to uh, settle this issue uh, where things are currently, uh, and uh, that uh, there is traction that uh, goes along. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, this is uh, pure propaganda. We saw that earlier this week when a uh, particular peace proposal uh, that was put forth was given to Hamas, and Hamas uh, basically countered by saying, sure, uh, we'll have uh, peace if Israel uh, ceases all military operations, if Israel removes their troops from Gaza, and if Israel, get this, uh, has a total ban on any Jewish uh, people going to the Temple Mount. That, that ain't going to happen. Uh, so, you know, again, it just tells me that they are really not uh, interested in peace. So uh, the, the the bottom line is uh, the hostages are still being held in the vast tunnel system that has been built uh, by these terrorists using uh, billions of dollars, literally. They've been given to Gaza for humanitarian aid. Uh, same sort of thing is going on right now. Uh, the UNRWA uh, is uh, currently uh, on lockdown because of lack of funding, uh, as it should be. Uh, one discovery after another uh, shows us that the UNRWA, uh, which is supposed to be uh, the uh, refugee works agency working uh, with uh, Palestinian refugees, is little more than a conduit uh, for arms and munitions. In, in fact, uh, the issue of humanitarian aid has come up. The United States has, has laid uh, great stress on that, that uh, humanitarian aid needs to get into Gaza. But uh, the uh, the bottom line is uh, the humanitarian aid really only ends up being uh, food and supplies uh, for Hamas. In fact, many of these humanitarian aid uh, shipments have uh, had uh, large amounts of weapons and ammunition associated with them as well. So much so that another hot button issue, and this could be percolating in the news for next week. Uh, you can think about this over the weekend. Uh, there, you know, you've seen uh, pro Hamas demonstrators in our country uh, blocking roads, literally lying down on roads to block commerce to gain traction for their and attention for their cause. Well, now on the main roads going into uh, Gaza, Israeli citizens are now lying down on the roads and not allowing the trucks with humanitarian aid to uh, get through because they pretty much had it with Hamas. So, uh, again, lots going on in those regions. Uh, The uh, exchange of fire uh, between Israel and uh, Hezbollah in the north is continuing on. Uh, The uh, uh, so-called payback uh, for three United States soldiers being killed by a wholly uh, sponsored uh, Iranian-funded militia operating out of Iraq, uh, attacking uh, one of our uh, bases in Jordan, uh, has uh, come and gone some high-value targets as far as Hezbollah uh, in uh, Iraq have uh, been taken out. 
along that line, which is not bad. But uh, the fact that we telegraphed these attacks that we were going to have basically sent uh, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps coordinators behind these militias screwing back to Iran and has communicated to Iran in no uncertain terms that the United States will not make any kind of attacks on Iranian territory. So uh, why we continue to have this romance with Iran, uh, thinking that somehow if uh, we are nice to them, they'll be nice to us, uh, ignoring the fact that every Friday is death to the great Satan day in the main courtyard in Tehran in front of the uh, government office buildings. And they mean what they say. That's, that's exactly their point. Uh, maybe We're the great Satan, by the way. Maybe there's a, a fear of uh, sleeper cells that have uh, infiltrated our country, being turned loose uh, to create mayhem, and maybe that is the, uh, the wedge issue, the card the Iranians are playing. We can only speculate. But the bottom line is that uh, Israel is going to continue uh, to attack uh, Hamas, uh, and uh, again, uh, the idea is that somehow uh, a U.S. or Egyptian, Jordanian, or even Saudi Arabian uh, broker deal is going to come about uh, is a non-starter. Uh, another thing uh, very interesting, uh, the United States has mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia uh, softening up its approach towards Israel, which is the worst thing that you can do if you are in fact interested in seeing Saudi Arabia and Israel normalize relations uh, because it makes them look bad in the region. And then Saudi Arabia will have to uh, turn around and make some statement about uh, the only way that we will normalize uh, relations with Israel is if a, a Palestinian state is established. Well, the Palestinian state, uh, the idea behind that uh, died effectively on October 7th. Uh, it died with the massacre that took place there. Uh, Israel will never go along with that sort of thing. But uh, the United States is continuing to try to push in that direction. Uh, I am not sure exactly why, uh, but uh, this is, uh, again, the uh, policy of our nation. Uh, if you've been following the news, uh, there is serious questioning as to uh, the uh, even the uh, mental capacity of our commander-in-chief to be able to operate uh, and uh, guide the United States in these endeavors. This only emboldens our enemies in that region. So uh, don't look for any kind of peace anytime soon. Don't look for Israel to uh, really uh, have a whole lot of, uh, well, deference to the United States' wishes in this area. I think what we are going to see uh, very, very soon is the setup for the attacks on uh, Rafa. Uh, if uh, Yaha Sinwar is uh, either captured or killed. That is going to be a huge, huge development in that region. And it's going to be very interesting to see how things shake out along this line. And understand that this is somewhat of a war on two fronts for them, because just as much as Jesus' observation said that a house divided against itself will not stand. Right. The reason why Iran's doing all the saber-rattling that we're seeing is because they're as much insecure about their own religious convictions as they are their own national security. For example, uh, this is on the website Article 18 on January 30th of this year that uh, two brothers were arrested for hosting a home church in their homes, as that's the name. Uh, the problem with this was in order to justify this under what they claimed was Article 
500, they made an amendment to it by accusing them of, quote, deviant propaganda activities contrary to the holy Islamic law. Or for those of you who don't speak terrorist, being Christian. Now, as far uh, as this, okay, <laughs> as far as this being an overstep on their part, they managed to basically, I guess, extort is the only way to put it, three thousand dollars out of the family in order to get them back home. But when we see reports like, for instance, this was an article posted today. Let me get the source here for a moment. Uh, Fox News, interestingly enough, on February seventh. Uh, Jihad Watch posted on the 9th that the Iranian nuclear program could produce a functional weapon within one week. That is meant to scare some people, but understand as well what's going on at home. There were 15 people shot by Iranian Muslim migrants in Switzerland this, well, literally today. And of course, there are... um, individuals who are having their fingers amputated for stealing sheep from the Islamic Republican Guard Corps. This is in uh, verse-by-verse fulfillment of Surah 538 of the Quran, and being Shia wouldn't make any difference in how they would review the Quran as a legal manual. You can read the Ayatollah's Green Book if you want further clarification on that. And, And even then today, this one amused me in particular, that the Islamic Republic of Islamic Republic of Iran, I can speak, uh, made a province that bars women from exercising in public city parks. They would view that as public indecency. So when we're seeing Sharia being enforced so directly, so plainly, and so passionately by the Iranians, what does that say? Well, like any other time in history, when the dictator closes its fist, it oftentimes just causes its people to fall between his fingers. As Iran is trying to crack down on Islamic law and Islamic adherence, it's only because there's been two mindsets throughout history as far as the failure of Islam to live up to its own hype, to dominate the world. And that was either Islam's not all it's cracked out to be, which you'd be killed for saying, but over 40% of Muslims now today are identifying as closet atheists or converts, but are not being public about their apostasy lest they be executed— Allah, Muhammad's orders, or they're saying we're not being Muslim enough. And this, of course, is the decision and route that countries like Iran are trying to go. So in this zeal and passion to make up for their outright failure, and we've talked about this before, their end-time scenario of the most hilariously constructed excuse for pretending that their empire didn't collapse already within a hundred years of its founding, and claiming that this mystery sun that no one had ever heard of will appear from a well, and on it goes. You can feel free to read more about it in the fiction novel that Joel Rosenberg made, The Twelfth Imam, or perhaps if you want more detail and sources cited, check out uh, Brother Rashid and David Wood's live stream discussing The Twelfth Imam. Rashid is an ex-Muslim from Morocco. He has a lot of personal experience with people who adhere to this kinds of things. We're talking about people who are being persecuted for being Christians in line with Surah 929. We're talking about people being oppressed and having human rights violated, which the world can only turn a blind eye to for so long, an amputation as a form of corrective punishment for 
petty theft in this case. And we're seeing the oppression of women, which the United States supposedly is very much against. When we're seeing all these things, they need to be at the back of our minds because these are things that are not only happening today, but they're showing a trend that is only going to continue to escalate. And the best thing for evil to do in the case of those on the side of good is to overplay its hand, which we're already seeing in the works. Right. So, right. One other thing I want to mention, uh, and I would highly encourage you uh, to go to the JerusalemPost.com uh, uh, website uh, and uh, take a look at this article. Uh, but uh, a uh, former guest on A Reason for Hope uh, is uh, featured in this article, Museb Hassan Yosef, also known as the Green Prince or the son of Hamas. Uh, has uh, an article in the Jerusalem Post because he is joining Israel's national public diplomacy campaign. He is going to have an official role in all of this, and uh, I won't uh, spoil everything, but uh, it, it includes an interview with him, his takes about uh, what Hamas is really all about, uh, why he left Hamas, uh, what the uh, their, their covenant is. Uh, he, if you remember our interview with him, tends to speak, his mind in a very uncensored, unfiltered way. He would choose the cow. Yeah. Uh, said uh, the uh, people that wrote the Hamas Covenant are a bunch of lunatics. Uh, and uh, the most fascinating thing uh, that uh, is there in the article, there's a lot of fascinating things, and I would encourage you uh, to read it. But uh, he warns that Hamas is dragging out negotiations on purpose. He says, Hamas is going nowhere, and if we continue to negotiate with them, they will continue stretching these negotiations, taking us into a rabbit hole that will never end, and this is their goal, to get away with their crimes. We cannot allow this to happen. He said, if we don't eradicate them, if we validate them, if we give them power or legitimacy, we are in real trouble. Uh, In media briefings, Yosef uh, called on Israel to, now here's a way to solve the hostage crisis. (laughs) <laughs> talk about thinking outside the box. You ready for this? Uh, to set a time limit for Hamas to release the remaining 136 Israeli hostages, and if they don't, to kill his father and other senior Hamas leaders. Hamas must have a time frame, a month, two months, or six months, he said, to return the hostages. And if they don't return the hostages within the time frame, Israel must execute top Hamas leaders in prison, especially the mass murderers. When I say execute top Hamas leaders, I mean no exceptions. That includes my father, the co-founder of the Hamas movement. So let it ever be said he goes halfway. So fascinating article. It's there at the Jerusalem Post again. The uh, title of it is The Son of Hamas Knows Best. It's an editorial. All right. Well, with that said, going out to your questions, we want to start with a question from Philip, which we didn't get the chance to get to for two days now, better late than never, who wants to know, will a born-again Christian with Down syndrome or any other kind of disability have a renewed mind in heaven? Well, Philip, when we're told about the glorified state, the one thing that we need to keep in mind as our focus is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where in a nutshell it's making a point about our glorified body being just like his. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't have any disabilities or deformities that we know of, so he couldn't demonstrate a before and after in that sense. 
But if we were to make a distinction between someone's, and this is very contrary to the world we live in in the United States, but someone's personality, what makes them them, their character, their traits, their bearing the image of God, and a defect physically, will that be something that's preserved or removed? And we have more reason to believe there's a difference between someone's disability and who they are. Right. So when we're, say, for instance, interacting with people who have, and this is a direct example, you can give more um, personal experience with them, a guy with cerebral palsy who used to go to Calvary Costa Mesa, he was just as mentally alert as anyone else, but his body was in shambles. And when you told a joke, he was able to track with it. And mm -hmm. you're quoted as saying he had the heartiest laugh there ever oh, was. Oh, my God. But yeah. when we're looking at people and towards people who, say, have Asperger's, uh, acute autism, or people who are non-functional autism, they're not any less human than anyone else would be, but they have basically a brain that's set on overload, so they're functioning in ways that would be different than we'd expect socially. They're trying to manage processing light and so forth at the cost of not being able to process emotions. So the point being made is this. When we're talking about disabilities, say an amputation, do we have reason to believe they'll get their leg back in the resurrection? Absolutely, because sure. Jesus yeah. modeled for us yeah. a whole body. Yeah. When we're looking at people who have brain defects, whether it's Down syndrome, whether it's you know uh, an inherited or sometimes an adopted addiction to a particular substance, do we have reason to believe that someone who overdosed on fentanyl is not going to have that problem in heaven? Well, it doesn't mention fentanyl, but we do have Jesus as a reference. He didn't have that problem. Right. So would I say that Jesus would inherit a disability if he had one? And the answer would be no. A glorified body will be able to reflect perfectly the character and image of God in the same way that Adam and Eve did from the beginning, where there were no such things as disabilities like Down syndrome. Right. So if you're looking for Down syndrome, Asperger's, fentanyl, those kinds of terms, we don't have it biblically, but we have a framework, a principle, that Jesus is the model of what we'll know. The question then is, and this is what needs to be prayed about, are we letting our culture dictate to us that my disability is a part of who I am? Or... Is there something that God can work with in spite of the disability? There are people who are encouraged and comforted by accepting their flaws as a part of who they are, but God wants to work in spite of them and notes that that is something wrong. Right. But also that he can do something good in spite of those things that are wrong. It would be no more something that we justify in a moral sense, not making a comparison to you know a murderer and someone with a mental disability, but say, for example, the fact that God could use David in spite of the fact he was an adulterer and a murderer. Right. God didn't make an excuse for that. He condemned him passionately, and he faced consequences for it. But the question is whether or not he'll inherit that guilt or inherit those proclivities in yeah, the resurrection. Yeah, we would have to worry about David uh, doing the same things in heaven, in other words. Which, of course, is not reflecting the character of Christ, which is why we'd go to 1 John 3 as our framework, and other passages like 1 Corinthians 15, being yeah. conformed to his glorious body. Yeah. So let us know if that helps you out. Philip, thank you for the question and your patience. Uh, Anything. Yeah, and, 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 and the definitive, I think, is just what you pointed out from First John three. Uh, you know, uh, you know. Again, uh, uh, beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He's pure. 
Okay. That's our hope. So let us know if that helps you out, Phil. Thank you for the question. Um, Dan is asking, and interestingly enough, Mike are asking questions we both answered from them yesterday. So feel free to listen to yesterday's broadcast. Let us know if that helps. Uh, there was also another question from Dan on what are our thoughts on the narrow path? I think what you're referencing is Jesus' statement, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many that go thereby. Narrow, Narrow is the way and straight is the path that leads to life, and few there will be that find it. If that's what you're asking about and our thoughts on it, um, I'm for it. I think Jesus was correct. <laughs> I'm for it, yeah. Well, you know, the, the question always comes up, uh, okay, why is Christianity so narrow? Uh, why do you Christians oftentimes, were asked, say that your way is the only way? And in, in our culture, the, the culture that gave us the coexist bumper sticker, uh, you know, that saying your way is the only way to heaven is uh, like a social blunder right up there with slurping your soup or belching at the dinner table. It's just considered bad manners to say something like that. Well, when someone says to me, you know, you, you, you say that your way is the only way, the first thing that I want to do is I want to pull them up short and say, well, first of all, um, I don't say this. And they'll look at me funny and I'll say, no, it's Jesus who said this. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 14, Jesus said in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, that's an incredibly narrow statement when we combine it uh, with other statements like you know, the one you mentioned, that wide is the, the, the broad is the path and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many travel thereon. Narrow is the gate and, and straight is the path that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Why does Jesus say that? Well, because uh, contrary to the way our society looks at spirituality, uh, it isn't just a question of sincerity that counts. Most people believe the content of your faith uh, is secondary to how much you truly believe in it. And if you truly believe in it, uh, then the content really doesn't matter. But Jesus turns that on his head. Uh, he said, hey, um, I am it. I am the only way. Well, why would we say something like that? Well, you know, once again, Jesus' method, if you will, of making us right with God is absolutely in, in contradistinction to any other religious point of view you want to name in a very simple way. Uh, most people, when they uh, think about getting to God by the various religious paths that are offered out there, the coexist bumper sticker, uh, they begin with man's feet planted firmly on earth, looking up to heaven, if you want to use that analogy, and saying, here is how we bridge that gap. And uh, they will give you good works to do. Uh, they will give you different states of consciousness that you have to achieve. Uh, they will tell you that uh, perhaps you have to uh, work off the bad misdeeds from previous lives uh, and suffer in this life because you did something in the past. But all these things have one thing in common. They are all designed for us to build our stairway to heaven, if you will rung by rung, step by step, by human effort. The Bible tells us that the exact opposite is true. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, in the book of Romans chapter 5, we were told, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Now, notice it doesn't say uh, when we were still, well, a little weak, but if we go to the spiritual gym and do enough curls or something like that or lunges and don't miss leg day, uh, someday we will be spiritually fit enough to bridge that gap. Uh, no, it, it says that we were helpless. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not a little misguided, not just a little off. We were absolutely incapable of saving ourselves. Why? Because God is perfect. He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely just. And because he is absolutely just, he can't look the other way at the sin and wickedness and evil that is in our lives. He has to deal with it. On the other side of the coin, God is also perfect love. He loves us and wants to reach a way for his justice and his love to be satisfied. That's why Jesus became a man. He, being God, very God, became a man in the virgin birth, in the incarnation. He lived a perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. He willingly took that sinless life and laid it down on a cruel Roman cross so that uh, our sins could be forgiven. He took our place. Uh, the Bible tells us God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, in Jesus, that greatest distance in the universe is bridged, the distance between fallen sinful people and a holy God. God is the one who bridged the gap. He is the one who reached out to us. He is the one who offers us salvation by his grace, a gift that he paid for at a tremendous price. The justice of God being satisfied because Jesus paid the price for our sins, the mercy and love of God being satisfied when he reaches out to us and says, anyone who believes in what Jesus has done for them, puts their faith and trust in Jesus, asks him to come into their life in a personal way, will be saved. Uh, and so when we say there's one way, uh, when we say there's a broad way and a narrow way, well, the broad way basically says, well, just be sincere and, and I'm sure it'll all work out for you. But if sincerity is all that matters, right, we, we run into some problems, don't we? Uh, we can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. Uh, you can say an awful lot of things about the 9-11 uh, uh, terrorists who rammed a uh, plane in the World Trade Center, but sincere or insincere is not one of them. Uh, the Nazis that uh, executed 6 million Jews under Hitler, uh, we could say a lot about them, but you have to be very sincere in your belief to actually put these things into practice. Sincerely wrong, but sincere nonetheless. You see, I can sincerely believe that human flight is possible by flapping my arms. I can be so committed to this, I can drive to downtown Tucson after the show, go up in the highest high-rise downtown, open the window, and say, I'm going to fly to Los Angeles and start flapping my arms. Well, no matter how sincere I am about that belief, it's not going to make the sidewalk any softer when my flight to L.A. ends a little bit short of the destination. Wait till tomorrow. You might have some snow. So <laughs> the, the bottom line, though, is... If there is any other way to save us, God would have provided it. Uh, and, and one of the most challenging questions, I think, people ask that question about uh, the, uh, the narrowness, if you will, of Christianity is this. If uh, it doesn't really matter what we believe, as long as we're sincere, why did Jesus have to die on a cruel Roman cross? And you know, the only other thing I'd add to that is it's just interesting to me that when life and death are on the line, 
right? Suddenly truth and narrow truth becomes really, really important. Um, you know, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, went to the Mayo Clinic. You know, they ran a bunch of tests on me. And if they were to come back and say to me, well, you know, Mr. Richards, I'm really sorry, but you have cancer. My next question is, okay, what are we going to do about it? How do we treat it? Uh, well, if that doctor looked at me and said, well, far be it for me to put my narrow-minded view on you, what do you think we should do? We could put a cast on your arm. We could take out your appendix. Uh, plastic surgery is really popular. Just do what seems right and best to you. Well, I'd be looking for another physician so fast and make your head spin. Why? Because when someone tells you you have a fatal disease, uh, suddenly truth gets real narrow. Suddenly, it's not just a question of opinion. Suddenly, it's a question of finding that which actually cures the disease. Only Jesus' death for our sins, the perfect Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead in a moment of history solves man's greatest problem, because the wages of sin is death, and that's eternal separation from God. And just as another humorous side note before we get to the next question, when someone objects to the idea, well, that's just so narrow-minded and bigoted, here's the problem. The objection to narrow-mindedness is coming from the worldview that, as you were saying, there's no such thing as absolute truth. That's true for you, the Christian thing, but it's not true for me. Well, the problem with that statement is if you make it play by its own rules, you're going to give yourself intellectual, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you fill in the word. A tail chasing, yeah. Because if you say, well, that's true for you, but not for me, is that statement then true for you, or is it true for both of us? Because you seem to be imposing the idea that that statement is true for you, but not for me. But there are absolutely something. no absolutes, except for that one. Yeah, that, that's absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. On it goes, but not uh, to accuse modern academia of being inconsistent or not thinking through some of their fundamentals, because that would be rude of me. I'll let them prove that themselves. The point is, don't fall for that as a dismissal of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, here's a question from Dwayne, who wants to know, what are our thoughts about Christians watching things that have blood, violence, sex, things that could stumble people in them? Uh, my personal approach on these matters is to understand, first of all, that you aren't the only one watching that film or game or fill in the blank. And as far as sources of entertainment and media are concerned, there's two kinds of mistakes we can make. First is underestimating what this world can do to influence us. Excuse me. And the second is to overestimate it. So the underestimating error would be to say, I have to be completely sheltered, completely filtered. There's nothing I can let into my fragile little psyche because Jesus just isn't good enough to compete with all these things if I dare show it in front of my face. Obviously not the case. God's given a measure of grace to some, and this is true as much in our exercise of discernment as it is for self-control. When I personally hear bad language, for instance, in films, not that it leaves you much of an option, and that will tie into our second point here in a moment. It doesn't bother me, because God's given me enough grace to know that those kinds of words aren't appropriate in any company, let alone polite. So if, you know, people are slinging the four-letter hash, and I'm just kind of there talking English instead of profanity, 
and the word gets out that, you know, oh, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. You've had similar experiences on the golf course, Dad. It's suddenly, oh, they, they want to clean up their language. Why? Because they're mindful of the fact that Christians have a personal conviction of the fact that we shouldn't let coarse language or jesting come out of our mouths, but for godly edification. That's in Ephesians, by the way. So when we're talking like that, it's becoming a part of our nature and character. That's when we have to draw the line. If hearing those kinds of words brings back either old lifestyles and habits or normalizes those things for you, then note that would be wise to avoid because it's, and here's the key, influencing you. If on the other hand it's just a consequence of being in a fallen sinful world and people can't convey emotions without making references to some vulgarity or whatever, you can live with that because God's given you a measure of grace. The other alternative, though, is to not just overestimate, but underestimate it. Not just being aware of how these things are influencing you, but even those around you. And this is the real key verse. In the book of Romans, it notes that we should be sensitive to each other's conscience, that I should not use my liberty as a cloak for vice. Right. Because I have freedom in Christ, because I've been given a measure of grace or self-control, I'm not stumbled by this, that, or the other, that I'm in the company of people who might be who, in the example that he was giving, come from an idolatrous pagan background. You go to a meat market and say, this was offered to an idol. You know that an idol, the word literally means nothing. There isn't a god named Zeus out there who has some power over this, you know, pork rib or whatever. You're just like, just give me the beef. (laughs) Where's the beef? That's where I want. But if, on the other hand, the other person's coming from that background and suddenly, oh no, am I getting back into this? If I involve myself in that temple, is like the spirit of Zeus, is he going to send someone to, you know, impregnate my wife like that always seems to happen in the stories? That's going to be a stumbling block for him. So when you're watching those movies or when you're making those references, You have to consider not only the kind of grace you've been shown, but the kind of grace that you need to show. And so when I'm around people, I make sure that they're aware. I don't mind blood. I don't mind violence. I don't mind language. It's not going to affect me. But I do struggle with lust. So tell me if this is going to involve nudity, if this is going to involve marital activities in or outside of that in a gratuitous way. I need to either step out of the room or could we right. watch something else? Why? Because right. I'm not underestimating its influence on me. Yeah. But if on the other hand, someone's like, uh, you know, that movie, it's got a lot of violence and swearing in it. I don't say, oh, you baby, grow up. This is the real world. No, I say, okay, well, is there something else that you'd like to watch or would you like to just do something else? That should be our attitude. Um, I sometimes find loopholes in conversations about these things by saying, well, there's some good things in there but there's some bad things in there. Be aware of both. So that way I get to talk about the gospel in it, but then they can't shame me for it because I also mentioned the other stuff. Yeah. That's just my thought. Yeah. You know, a couple of scriptures always come to my mind. Uh, you know, I think, uh, and uh, the, the person who asked the question, Dwayne, Dwayne, you know, Dwayne, uh, one of the uh, things that I think is really important, and I agree with what you've said here, Sean, uh, is that, uh, you know, we need to have uh, a grid, if you will, uh, that uh, we have put together uh, and, and worked out before we find ourselves in a place where we're confronted, say, by questionable media. Um, you know, the, the, the problem with not having that kind of discernment and just sort of taking in whatever comes your way 
uh, you know, like you mentioned, Sean, you just don't know what kind of worldly stuff uh, is going to really have an impact on you till it does. Uh, better to keep it out before it can do its work within. Uh, you know, there's a couple of scriptures that come to mind uh, in uh, Psalm 101 and verse 3. We're told, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Now notice, uh, David says that he, that as far as his standard was concerned, he wasn't going to allow anything wicked uh, before his eyes. He goes on to define this as the work of those who fall away. That is, if I'm watching something and it is in direct opposition, rebellion, rejection, repudiation of God and the things of God, well, then I probably need to find something else to watch. Um, you know, why would I want to support something that promotes wickedness? That is a lifestyle that rejects God. So, you know, that would be David's standard there spiritually. Uh, as far as maybe the standards for a grid, I just love what Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 says. Uh, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. In other words, let your mind dwell on these things. Well, okay, I've got a grid in place here. I can look at something and I can say, well, is this true? Is this noble? That is, does it reflect the better part of human nature? Does it elevate our spirit or does it just say, oh, life stinks and then you die? Uh, you know, is, is it just, does it promote a worldview, uh, that, uh, that tells us that there is such a thing as real right and real wrong and real consequences? Uh, is there anything in it that it's pure? Uh, if it is impure, that is, it leads us into impurity, uh, leads us into, like you say, lustful attitudes and behaviors. Uh, we just don't need to have it in our lives. Whatever things are lovely, is it uh, a really beautiful work of art? Does it reflect the creativity of our creator? Uh, whatever things are of good report. Uh, in, in other words, uh, are we watching things that are, you know, not necessarily building up some celebrity just to tear them down? Uh, are, are we talking about people maybe that are being a good example, that have done things right? If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know, people say, well, that's a lot of things to keep in mind. But when you stop and think about it, um, true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy, um, that's Jesus. You know, and if I spend my time thinking about Jesus and his character, and I have as my standard uh, whatever media I'm going to indulge in, hey, Jesus, come here, pull up a seat. We're going to fire up the internet right now and take a look at some things. Would I want to do that if Jesus was sitting right there? Um, great standard to have. can keep you out of a peck of trouble. All right. Um, here's a very, very in-depth question that we'll try to speak in plain English about. <laughs> uh, Robbie, who, by the way, is attending intentionally, a secular Old Testament course at a public university. So we're going to be hearing right a lot on. from That's him. Right on. That's great. Yeah, uh, we've been in contact. He's had his uh, professor have to change her slides on more than one occasion. So good on you, bro. Um, he wants to know what the documentary hypothesis is, and then, of course, the assumption behind it. Was the Old Testament entirely oral until the time of Josiah, or 
perhaps the more noble-minded, King Solomon. Uh, the documentary hypothesis, for those who aren't aware, are a series of claims that are all based on a false presupposition. If I need to define it anymore, I guess I don't have to, but I still will. It's the claim that the Old Testament, specifically the books of Moses, but they'll claim multiple authorship to Isaiah and others as well in order to get out of this, and by this I mean considering the Bible as a historical source, that this was compiled through a variety of different authors. They'll say that the Yahwist, the people who put a heavy emphasis on the deity of the God that they apparently chose out of thin air, will be in a certain style of Hebrew, that the grammar reflects the Yahwist position. While there's others that would emphasize more of the judicial position, and then they'll make some bizarre claims about the grammar being different from that of the Yahwist. And then they'll say, well, there's others that would emphasize the historical, the most part. And this may have been actually written by Moses, and, and on and on it goes. They'll put it into four categories, they'll yeah, mark up... Yeah, J, J, E, P, and D. Yeah, uh, the Elohists and the The, the, the J category refers to, like, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, the E is Elohim. Uh, the P uh, stands for priestly passages referring to offerings and worship and so on. And the D stands for the deuterocanonical part of uh, the, the passages. That is the idea of uh, specific uh, commands and, and civil laws and so on. And, the, and that there were four of these different authors that end up composing what we would call the five books of Moses. But unfortunately, their selections of the Hebrew grammar and the distinctions between the two more than a dozen times all end up applying to the same verse. Yeah, so. uh, you know, maybe the best way to kind of condense this down, and, you know, because sometimes it does get to be a little bit of inside baseball here. And we'll is, debunk it in a second. Is, uh, you know, J-E-P and D was put together by, uh, uh, largely a, a uh, promoted by a fellow by the name of Jules Wellhausen, who wanted to apply Darwinian thought, really kind of the thoughts of Hegel, to uh, the idea of the Bible, that the Bible could be explained without any kind of recourse to supernatural events. And, and so because of that, because of this evolutionary worldview, uh, again, uh, Jules Wellhausen, uh, another uh, researcher named Graf, who put this thing together, uh, basically said that there was no way that Moses could have written uh, the first five books of the Bible, uh, as Jewish tradition uh, asserts, as Jesus himself asserted in the Gospels, as Peter and Paul both confirm uh, in Acts and in the epistles, uh, they denied that because uh, written language was not around during the time of Moses. Was it now? Uh, Roughly around 1400 B.C. or so. Uh, so they say because of that, because there was no written language, they couldn't have written that. Probably uh, was written during the time of Solomon. Uh, others would even push it farther forward to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, and, and say, well, that's, that's really where it was written. One, you know, and, and people say, well, you know, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and if uh, you would go to any secular university, that's the song and dance they would give you about where we got of the first five books of the Bible, until uh, roughly about 1948. Yep. Uh, there was a discovery in a place called Tel Mardik in Syria uh, where they uncovered an ancient city by the name of Ebla. Uh, Ebla was an incredibly sophisticated city, and it dated 
to almost a thousand years before the time of Moses. Now they found within Ebla a library, an extensive library with clay tablets written with a kind of language called cuneiform Mm -hmm. on it. Uh, Because they have other examples of this cuneiform writing, they were able to interpret and translate these tablets. These weren't art, Uh, this was communication. Yeah, and uh, most of them were records about commercial transactions that had happened between Ebla and the surrounding areas around it. Well, among other things they discovered was that uh, the Hittites who at that time were considered legendary because there's no such, no archaeological evidence they existed, were mentioned in the Ebla tablets. Subsequently to this, uh, many, uh, many Hittite sites have now been uh, excavated. No one doubts the Hittites anymore. Turns out uh, they were the first people to domesticate horses and purposes of war, so very influential. <laughs> yeah, to add to this, Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned as trading partners with Ebla. And Zeppelin uh, and Zoar. And, uh, and mentioned specifically in these things. But as far as the documentary hypothesis is concerned, and the idea that Moses could not have written the first five books because written language did not exist at that time, well, Ebla showed that there was an incredibly sophisticated form of written writing that predated Moses by a thousand years. So Oops. the foundation stone of the documentary hypothesis that you have to invent these four different authors, if you will. And, and in, as you mentioned, Sean, uh, if you're going to follow through on that, there's a, a, a few scriptures where all four of these authors had to have written a part of it to make it fit. So, um, you know, when, when we see that, uh, we say, well, it just doesn't really stand up under examination historically, archaeologically, but even more, Jesus in Mark chapter 12 and verse 26 said, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus plainly states that Moses wrote the account of the burning bush. Now here's really kind of what it comes down to. If you want to bottom line it is this, do I want to believe the words of Jules Wellhausen? who no disrespect intended, is a moldering in the grave? Or do I want to put my faith and trust in the words of Jesus Christ, who not only claimed to be God, who claimed to have been there at the the burning bush, but also proved his credentials by rising from the dead? Your choice. And if that's not sufficient for you, but they still regard the text itself throughout the five books of Moses, there is reference to them being instructed to write these things down. So contemporary primary sources within the Torah notes the assumption that written language existed at the time. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 9 notes that, speaking of the law, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Before the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 17, Moses instructed to tell Joshua to write down the curse against Amalek for attacking those who weren't combatants in Israel's walking party. In the, um, I get, I'm trying to remember, in the book of Numbers, there was uh, 33, the start of Numbers 33, Moses is right down the family genealogical records of Israel after the time of the wilderness. It's already assumed within the text. So if they're going to be objective historians, what do they say? Make assumptions and then read the text into what our well-worked theory is all about, or allow the text to present its information and then test it 
Ebla is one example. There are many. But when it ultimately comes down to it, the problem isn't whether or not the text is clear, the history is clear, or the data is clear. It's that they need it to be unclear because it asks of them something they don't want to do, and that is acknowledge there's a God. Yeah. But that's what happens when a well-worked theory hits a hard wall of facts. It shatters. Yeah. So note the false assumption, the Ebla tablets, number one. That's all you have to say. And then, of course, if you want more information, just note, then why is the text treated as if that was language? They could then do their song and dance and go, well, you know, they wrote that in afterwards because that would make it sound better. Okay, so now who's assuming conclusions? I have to believe that the authors wrote what they meant. You have to believe that the authors couldn't have wrote what they meant because you can't mean it. You can't let it mean what it says. Right. Who's the one who's working by faith at this point? So don't let that bother you. Yeah, and you know, you talk about uh, the idea of written language, um, although there is uh, some uh, debate still going on regarding this particular discovery. Uh, in 2023, an ancient curse inscription was found at Mount Ebal. Uh, in Israel. Uh, when Israel was to pronounce the blessings and the cursings, they would stand on Mount Gerizim, which was the place where blessings would be pronounced. Mount Ebal would be the place where curses uh, would be pronounced. Well, they discovered uh, in uh, 2023 a, uh, a uh, small folded lead tablet. Uh, they were able to, uh, you know, uh, examine it without damaging uh, this. Uh, they call them tomographic scans to recall to recover the hidden text. So um, once again, we see written language, biblical language, uh, going back to the time of Moses. And circulated throughout Israel. Thank you all for joining us. We'll look forward to seeing you all again. Remember, four to five o'clock from this time going forward. Pray that God uses it regardless of how and when we're speaking, as long as it's God's word. Till then, God bless you. We'll see you all next time. God bless. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.